And we're reading from Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 35. You can find that on page 743 in the TNA Bibles. And I'm going to pray before Paul reads for us. Father, we thank you that your word is perfect, that it revives the soul, that it's trustworthy, that it makes the simple wise. And we ask that you would give us a thirst to drink deeply from your word now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're reading from verse 35 of chapter 18. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. 
You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put back my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be the king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. At the Bible College, one of the things we aim to do is uh, not only teach the Bible, but help our students grow in their maturity as people. We uh, have found through um, the conversations we've had with pastors and uh, people who work in churches that one of the biggest shortcomings of lots of people in Christian ministry is that they're not actually personally mature or self-aware. And this is one of the things that causes all kinds of damage uh, in churches down the track. Uh, So recently, uh, in terms of trying to think about materials for students, I was reading this book on maturity. And it was a very interesting book. Uh, One of the things that helped me see is that you can be mature in different parts of your life unequally. So you can be intellectually mature, socially mature, academically mature, all kinds of different uh, parts of your life where you have maturity. Uh, But you can also, according to this book, um, have such maturity in one area that you can use it as a cloak or a guise to get by being immature in another area. So, for example, you might be fantastically intellectually mature and you use that as a way of getting by the fact that you're actually emotionally immature. Or you can be very socially mature, uh, but you use that as a way of getting around the fact that you're morally immature. And part of what holistic maturity is about is every part of you becoming mature uh, altogether. Now... Hopefully that'll make a bit of sense why I've told you that when we uh, come through to the end of the passage we've been reading today. Uh, This passage is relatively long and as you read through it you see there are uh, three fabulous stories in there, uh, each of which would be worthy of a sermon in its own right. Uh, We've got the blind man receiving his sight, magnificent story. We've got Zacchaeus, uh, famous story of the tax collector. Uh, And then we've got this story of uh, Jesus Going or telling his parable about the the king who goes off um, leaving funds entrusted to his servants while he's away and what happens when he returns. It's kind of these three great stories uh, and we could treat them separately but actually I think there's a very significant thread that ties them all together. The way to understand this is to understand the complete arc of Luke's gospel. If you get the complete arc of Luke's gospel then you'll start seeing how these stories come together. So let me just very briefly tell you where we're up to in Luke. Uh, You read through Luke's Gospel, and there's kind of three big chunks. The first chunk, chapters 1 to 9, is where we're really just getting to know who Jesus is. So it's got those stories, you know, Jesus is a baby, and the uh, great uh, kind of genealogies, all those sorts of things. Uh, Then chapters 9 through to 19 is this long journey story of Jesus journeying to Jerusalem. 
And then, of course, from 19 through to chapter 24, we've got the stories of uh, Jesus' arrest, trial, execution, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, All those at the the back end of there. Uh, Where we are is at the end of the second block. So the end of that big journey narrative uh, and about to head into Jesus going into Jerusalem. But to understand the end of it, you've got to look at the start of that block. So chapter 9 is the big turning point. Chapters 1 to 9, who is this Jesus? And then you get to chapter 9 and a few very significant things happen. One is that Peter works it out. You are the son of God. Jesus declares who Peter is. He gets it. Uh, Then following that, what do we see? Uh, Well, we call it uh, uh, a theophany or something like this. We see the the transfiguration. You know, Jesus' clothes become dazzling white. Moses and Elijah is there. This is, again, underscoring we know who this guy is. Okay, end of this first block, we've worked out who this guy is. Uh, And then in the rest of chapter 9, a few things happen that are important. There are three sort of separate little stories. And interesting, three stories there... Three stories where we are. Throughout Luke's gospel, there are triplets. Luke tends to work in triplets. Three big blocks. Three stories here, three stories there. And then finally, what you've got in chapter 9 is Jesus talking about what's going to happen to him. His death and his resurrection. And he talks about it, not three times, twice. Just twice. Okay, then... Of course, there's that great verse that we heard mentioned already in the service. Jesus said, chapter 9, verse 56, that he he sets his face to Jerusalem. Luke says that. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. The journey starts. We follow the journey. We get to our passage today, and we're towards the very end. How do we know we're at the end? Well, a few things. Remember I said that twice in chapter 9, Jesus talks about his death and his resurrection. And then you think, oh, doesn't Luke work in triplets? Well, the verses just before our verses this week, eight, uh, chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, for a third time, Jesus tells about his death and resurrection. That's kind of the, the brackets around this big travel story. And then you have, at the beginning of our passage, Jesus approaching Jericho. Now, if you know your kind of Middle Eastern geography, uh, Jericho is a town in Israel not far away from Jerusalem. So he's approaching Jerusalem. Uh, But not only that, if you know your Old Testament, Jericho is really the first city that God's people uh, came into as they entered the Promised Land. All those centuries ago, when they'd left Egypt, they'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they finally came into the Promised Land, Jericho is the, the way in. So Jesus is really now coming to the end of his journey. He's at Jericho. So here we have, I think, uh, signalled in the way that Luke's written his gospel, the fact that we have come to the end of this big block and we're about to now uh, enter into the last phase of Jesus' ministry. And if you look down just at the bottom of that that page, 743, you can see the heading there, the triumphal entry. And that's the great story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, palm branches on the road, people shouting out, Hosanna, he's arrived. But there's this little gap in between. We get this last telling Jesus of his death and resurrection, that third time. Uh, And then we get the triumphal entry. But in between, there's our three stories. There's our three stories here. And I think what they are is Jesus really underscoring the things he wants sitting in the front of his disciples' mind as he heads towards his death and resurrection. These are, as I've put it here, uh, Jesus' pre-game briefing. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, well, I am no sports coach either, so uh, you might have to tell me if I'm doing a bad job here. But uh, what I think is this. Jesus has taught a great deal over his ministry to his disciples. They've learned all kinds of things from him. They've now arrived uh, at Jericho, as it were, within spitting distance of Jerusalem. Uh, he tells about his death and resurrection. And then he says, uh, then, sorry, three things happen. Uh, two incidents and one story, uh, are, one parable are recorded here. And I think these are the three things that Jesus wants ringing in his disciples' ears as they watch the next week unfold so you know how it is in a sporting team uh, if there's a big game coming up there's lots of training they train for weeks and months and they hone themselves all the training is taken place before they show up but then they get to the sporting ground and there's that kind of few moments before they actually take the field and that's when the coach brings them over and says okay come on huddle huddle here it is game day three things i want you to remember now they're not new things like, you know, this is how you play the game. They go, oh, really? We never... No, no, no. You know all that. But keep these three things in your head. Now, I think that's kind of what Luke is doing in the way he structured this story. Uh, giving us these three pieces. So, let's have a look at each of these three stories. Each of them, as I say, in their own right, is worthy of lots of reflection. But let's have a look at them in summary. And then, when we get to the end, we'll see how important it is to hold them all together. The first thing that happens is we have this, uh, Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection, page 743. And then from verses 35 down through to uh, 43, we have this story of the blind beggar at Jericho. So Jesus is approaching Jericho. Uh, There's a blind man sitting by the roadside begging. Uh, he's blind. He, he can tell something's going on. Uh, obviously, there's movement. There's, there's people making noise. Something's happening. He wants to find out what's happening. Uh, and people say, oh, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus of Nazareth, notice that, the kind of the earthly, the worldly name of Jesus. Oh yeah, Jesus, that guy from Nazareth is coming. Well, even though he has no sight, he has a great deal of insight. This blind beggar knows who this man really is. And he yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Not the earthly name, guy from up in Nazareth, the name that places him in the history of Israel, son of David. It's really like saying Messiah, King, God's elect leader. Have mercy on me. Shameless, calling out for help from Jesus. Now, his friends tell him to hush down. This is profoundly embarrassing. The last thing you want to do is be in a group of people when one of them gets too excited about something and you think, oh man, just you know, water it down a bit, please. That's a bit over the top. We're happy to have a sticky beak at Jesus, but let's not go all out. The result of that is uh, they, uh, they rebuked him, told him to be quiet. He shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It's loud. It's, it's kind of drawing a lot of attention to him. And even if his friends are embarrassed, Jesus isn't. He gets Jesus' attention. Jesus comes over, asks him what he wants. The man says he, he wants to see. And Jesus says, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Now, it's not clear here that this man knows much about salvation, and it's not clear that Jesus here speaks to him much about salvation. But uh, if I can use the parallel, for those with eyes to see, there's a lot going on here. A blind man has received his sight. The parallel, and we see this in places like John's Gospel, chapter 9, uh, it's, un, it's unavoidable. 
What's going on? Someone who couldn't physically see has had their eyes opened. But this is the man who could spiritually see. And the call is for others. Open your eyes. See what he's seen. This is not just Jesus of Nazareth. This is the son of David. Have eyes to see. Now It also points forward to Jesus' completed work. Jesus is going to go shortly into Jerusalem and he will die on a cross for the sins of the world. But then he'll rise three days later and ascend to the right hand of the Father and a day will come when he'll return and his kingdom will be fulfilled and completed and there will be no blindness. The blind will see, the lame will leap for joy, the dumb will speak. Everyone will be healed when Jesus returns. Everyone who has faith in him like the blind man. So this is just a little foretaste of what's coming. The big point, though, I think in this story is a shameless call out to the Lord Jesus Christ is an act of faith that the Lord Jesus Christ rewards. A shameless call out. Now, I think today this is a very important thing for Christian believers to hear because, frankly, being a follower of Jesus can be embarrassing. It can be an embarrassing thing to be known as a follower of Jesus. But here's something that we just have to swallow. The embarrassment is inescapable. You cannot find a way of being Christian and never being, in some ways, the potential object of other people's ridicule. Uh, I know there are lots of new churches that are being established these days that are profoundly hip, profoundly cool. They are you know, cooler than the coolest cafe and the coolest nightclub you find. They've got the lights, they've got the clothes, they've got the haircuts, um, they've got the look and the walk and the talk. They are hip, right? All the way down to their $500 shoes. Uh, it's all worked out. Now, I'm, I'm mocking here a bit, but don't hear me wrong. These churches are fabulous and lots of people are getting converted to coming to Christ in these churches and being unashamedly passionate about Jesus. That's great. But one thing that everyone in all of these churches, just like in our church, needs to know is that a day will come when you will look stupid for being a follower of Jesus. A day will come when you will not be considered cool by everyone around you for following Jesus. That's just the reality of this radical faith. And I think it goes even further than that. I think what we learn from the blind man is not just you might end up looking uncool one day because of your faith in Jesus, but you should be prepared to go out on a limb with your faith. You should be prepared to call on Jesus no matter how stupid it makes you look. That is, not just passively accept the fact you'll be uncool sometimes, but be unashamed to proactively call out on Jesus in such ways that it could be embarrassing. Um, we have two cars at our place and my daughter uh, asked me a couple of years ago why we didn't have the little Christian fishy sticker on the back and I thought the true answer deep down inside because they're dorky that's the true answer but I thought about it and I thought what a hopeless hopeless reason to not put a fishy sticker on the back of our car so I bought one and put it on and of course she asked six months later why don't we have one on both of our cars okay so I bought another one that, I don't think they have any evangelistic impact, right? I don't think you drive around the city and people see fish stickers on cars and goes, hmm, maybe I should become a Christian. I don't think it works like that. But actually, it's powerful for me in a funny way 
Because it says, you know what, this is something I think is a bit dorky. But I'm going to stick it on my car precisely to tell me every time I get in it, I am unashamed to be identified with Jesus. I am unashamed to be identified with Jesus. And every time I drive through the city and wherever I go, everyone who looks at the back of my car knows there's a follower of Jesus. And I want to be unashamed about that all the time, in all circumstances. That's a trivial example. But it was an example that actually tweaked in my heart a bit. Uh, And so that's a good thing for me to do, to say, I am unashamed about Jesus. Well, Jesus keeps going. And you see in the start of chapter 19, verse 1, we've still got this progression, this movement, this heading towards Jerusalem. Now Jesus actually enters Jericho and was passing through. And he enters and he's passing through. And uh, uh, as he's there, he meets a man on the road. This man you know, I'm sure, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus also uh, has a physical impairment to seeing Jesus. He's not blind, he's short. (laughs) So uh, presumably there's crowds, Zacchaeus on his tippy toes, can't quite see over the crowds. He's interested, there's a bit of a kind of movement around Jesus, what's going on. Um, He works out a way to deal with this. Uh, Again, this is in lots of children's Bibles and even if you're not a Christian believer, you may have heard this story. Uh, What happens? Uh, Zacchaeus goes and climbs a tree, which we're reliably informed by Luke was a sycamore fig tree. I'm not sure the significance of that, but there you go. Uh, And he climbs a tree and you get the sense he's just sitting up there, peering down and he he gets to watch the parade as it goes past. But the parade doesn't go past. Jesus stops, looks up, eyeballs Zacchaeus and says to him, verse 5, chapter 19, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. Well, that may not be, have been what he was bargaining for. Uh, he, he may have just wanted to sit back and watch the parade go past, but Jesus says, no, come down, I must stay at your house today. Now, this is um, kind of a, a very unexpected turn of events. Zacchaeus, you see, is someone who was on the outer in a number of ways. He had a number of problems. If the blind man had a very obvious physical impairment, I can't see, Zacchaeus had bigger issues, in fact. Uh, the first was that he was a reject, oddly. He's wealthy, but he's a reject. Why? Because he's a tax collector, a chief tax collector, no less. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means he's one of the people that the Romans had enlisted to collect taxes from the Jewish people. That is, the Romans had occupied all of the Palestinian lands. This is the story of the gospel, obviously unfolds during the time of the Roman Empire. And in, in order to collect their taxes, they would get Jewish people to be the ones who collected the money. So what does this make Zacchaeus? A traitor. A traitor. He goes to his own people and says... Give me your money to pay those who are oppressing us. You don't have a lot of friends when you become that guy, the one who collects taxes from your own people for those who are oppressing you. But more than that, uh, it's uh, quite uh, clear that Zacchaeus steals as well. That is, kind of, the Romans don't really care if he just collects the tax or what he takes so long as he delivers what they ask for. So they ask him to collect $100 from every citizen and he collects $100 from every citizen plus an extra 20 30 50 for his own trouble. Who's going to hassle him? The Romans getting their money. They're going to protect him. He's not only a traitor, 
He's got self-interest and he's a thief. So Jesus comes and says, Zacchaeus, today I must stay at your house. This is not the guy you expect the Jewish Messiah to look out for. And yet, Zacchaeus is actually delighted. He comes down at once and welcomes him gladly. The people begin to mutter he's going to be the guest of a sinner because Zacchaeus is a tax collector taking money from his own people. But Zacchaeus' response is radical, isn't it? It's radical. What does he do? He stands up and he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. Like that. Here and now, half my possessions to the poor. Plus, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times as much. Remarkable. Remarkable transformation. And here's the main point. The call of Jesus on people's lives is unavoidably and radically transformative. Unavoidably and radically transformative. If the blind beggar called on Jesus, and it was a great show of faith, what we see in Zacchaeus is Jesus putting a call on someone else's life. Come down, I'm coming to your house. And that call is radically, radically transformative. Now here Jesus does talk about salvation. Today, verse 9, salvation has come to this house. For this man too is a son of Abraham. Using that language, Jesus was called son of David. Now Jesus is calling Zacchaeus son of Abraham. You are part of the family of God and salvation has come to your house. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. This is precisely the sort of person that Jesus came for. The wayward, those who ought to have had their lives lived under submission to the Lord God, but instead had wandered off into all kinds of sin and rebellion. What does this say to us? Well, it says two things, I think. The first is simply, uh, let's not be like the crowds who get grumpy when some despicable person comes to faith. Uh, When some despicable person hears the call of Jesus, agrees to respond to Jesus and, as it was, let Jesus into their lives, uh, our response isn't, well, why them? I'm better than them. Look at me. I I don't do all the nasty things they do. How come they get Jesus' favour? No, no, no. That's precisely the wrong response. What we need to say is, praise the Lord. Praise Jesus that he comes to seek and save what was lost. That's precisely his ministry. And we need to be people who celebrate that and never 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 feel grumpy about that as though somehow there's a merit-based system that Jesus is failing to adhere to well of course there is that's part of the gospel but the second thing I think we need to learn from this is we can't say really I have responded to the call of Jesus without allowing that to radically transform us We can't say, I've responded to the call of Jesus without that being allowed to radically transform us. Now, that transformation might look different depending on who we are. But I'm sure it will mean at least seeking to restore broken relationships, 
for Zacchaeus, those relationships are broken through the way he dealt with people financially. So how does he seek to restore those relationships? By making financial amends. Now, for others of us, it might be different. But if we hear the call of Jesus, it's a call to radical transformation that will involve the restoring of broken relationships. And I actually even want to take it further and say, I think if we've responded to the call of Jesus, we should be people who are radically transformed in the way we think about loving and caring for the needy in the world. Jesus' first wo- uh, sorry, Zacchaeus' first words, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Now again, I'm not saying uh, we need to give half our possessions to the poor, but we need to have that attitude. Here and now, I commit to supporting those in greater need than myself, sacrificially. That's part of the radical transformation of Jesus. Please uh, understand, I'm not saying these things save you. The order here is crystal clear. It's not that Zacchaeus gives money to the poor, repays back his debts, and Jesus says, great, you have now earned your salvation. It's precisely the opposite way. Zacchaeus, I must come to your house. People are grumpy. He's a sinner. But he's been transformed. And as a consequence of his transformation, he repays his debts. He looks out for the poor. The blind man teaches us that we should unashamedly call on the Lord Jesus. Zacchaeus teaches us that that call changes our hearts as well as opens our eyes. Uh, I knew a a young woman who uh, wasn't a follower of the Lord Jesus uh, and had a pretty good life. Um, Well-educated, family looked after her. Uh, And one of the things that she developed a taste for in her uh, young years was skiing. Uh, Going off and skiing the slopes, going on holidays where you'd go on ski trips. Uh, Loved it so much that actually uh, one of her great ambitions for life was to go through university, uh, get a good job, and as a consequence of getting a good job, basically just live rolling ski holidays. You know, Uh, And this was quite attainable. Um, She went to university... She got a qualification. There were good jobs out there. Uh, So the plan was, I'll just go from alpine slope to alpine slope and uh, earn the money to do that. Uh, The problem, though, struck her plan. The problem was she got converted. And when she got converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, her perspective changed radically. Not only did she not pursue those dreams of skiing every holiday, but when she got her first job... She made it her intention to give away 50% of her salary. 50% of her salary. A young grad. And I think, I think the Lord Jesus has called your heart and you've heard it and you're being transformed from being a ski bunny to being someone who wants to bless people in any way possible and to use material resources for the benefit of others. Well, what about the last story, the parable of the miners? Uh, Here we see the movement continues. Uh, He went on to tell them a parable because, this is uh, verse 11 of chapter 19, because he was near Jerusalem. So really, we're we're getting there now. We're arriving at Jerusalem. Uh, And this is all very clear. Uh, This is um, a parable. Some of Jesus' parables are hard to understand. This one, crystal clear, uh, on two counts, because the parable itself is 
pretty transparent. There's not a lot of hidden stuff in this. But also we see right at the top there in verse 11 the point. Jesus tells this parable because the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So there seems to be this mistaken idea that uh, when Jesus, if he's the Messiah, arrives in Jerusalem, the entirety of the kingdom of God will be ushered in immediately. And Jesus doesn't want people to get that idea. No, no, actually, it's not all going to be completed this weekend. Lots will be done. Uh, But then there'll be more that will happen afterwards. He tells this story. And again, it's a simple story. But powerful. It's a story that Jesus uses in different contexts. He's repurposed it. Tells a similar story in Matthew 25, but the emphasis is different. Here, this is how he wants us to learn. There's a nobleman who's uh, an heir to the throne, and the nobleman needs to head away for a while to actually be crowned to, for the coronation. As he heads off for this great coronation, he leaves ten of his servants, ten miners. Uh, a miner's not a little bird, a minor bird. Uh, not sure what you'd do with that if someone left you one. A miner is a sum of money. Oh, it's actually a weight, uh, but it's, it's a lot of money. It equates to perhaps um, a quarter of a year's salary for a labourer. So it's a significant amount of money. He leaves these 10 miners with 10 servants and he wants them to continue his business using his asset while he's gone. Pretty simple. You're my subjects. Here's some money while I'm gone. You do good with that, and I'll see you when I'm back. As he leaves, uh, other of his subjects are actually happy that he's gone. They hate him. Uh, And and bizarrely, uh, as he heads off to be crowned king, they do this ridiculous thing. uh, And this is verse 14. They hate him and sent a delegation after him, not to say have a good trip or come back soon, but to say, we don't want you to be our king. Okay, that's a nice message for me to take as I head to my coronation. I'll just store that away on file. Anyway, he was made king because uh, their rejection didn't really make much difference at the end of the day to uh, whether or not he'd become king. And he returns. And when he returns, he calls the people who he'd given the money to and uh, wants to get an accounting for how they've gone. The first one, verse 16, says, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Uh, Then we see the second one, uh, verse 18, Sir, your miner has earned five more. And clearly the king is very pleased with these two. Well done, my good servant. Well done, my good servant. You've been trustworthy in a small matter. Take charge of ten cities. Uh, Clearly what's going on is, the nobleman who became king, he, he entrusted his servants with these miners, this, this significant sum of money. He's gone away, he's come back, and it turns out this was actually something of a, of a test, a test of their loyalty, not really their business acumen so much, but a test of their loyalty. And it's rewarded by the king with an even greater level of trust. You looked after a, a bunch of money, now I want you to look after cities in my name. It's almost like saying, I want you to join me as a ruler rather than just be a servant. There's a hint of that in it. Well, that's great. But then we get in verse 20 to another servant who has been given also this sum of money, this minor, and comes back 
and says, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away for you in a piece of cloth. So this sum of money has been wrapped up and here it is. And clearly this is profoundly disappointing. This is profoundly disappointing. This is not what the king wanted. In fact, he is profoundly angry and upset with this servant. Calls him a wicked servant. Strips the money of him and gives it to the one who had dealt with the ten. You think, that's pretty harsh. Like, he got a good return. Even if just those two guys, the one who made the ten miners, the one who made the five, even if they were the only ones who produced anything, he's still come out on top overall. You know, he had ten to start with, and now he's got 25. Why hassle this guy? And it's not like the guy's stolen the money. It's not like he's taken it. He's just returned everything that he was given. Why so harsh? Why so harsh? Well, I think there are two clear reasons why so harsh. The first is simply that this servant has rejected the call that the king placed on him. The king said, I'm entrusting you with something of mine for a purpose. Off you go. The man's come back and said, here it is. I didn't do anything with it. I didn't do what you asked me. I just kind of hung on to it. It's the equivalent, I think, of a boss at work saying to uh, one of their staff members, uh, here's a, a bunch of work that I need you to do in the folders. Um, I'll come back uh, next week and you can tell me how you've gone. Great. Come back next week. How'd you go with that work? Oh, here it is. It's in the folders. I haven't touched it. It's exactly as you gave it to me. You think, ah, oh, that's not really what I asked. You haven't done a thing. So... It's not theft, but it's a dereliction of duty, of what's been asked. But more than that, or in addition to that, this servant is also clearly driven by fear, not love. Driven by fear. You see the language you use, I've kept, this is verse 21, I was afraid of you, you're a hard man, you take out what you didn't put in and reap what you didn't sow. The way I think about you is fear, and that you're going to be harsh to me. But this is actually quite offensive, it's quite offensive, and the king shows how offensive this is uh, and says, doesn't he, quite clearly, I'll judge you by your own words. You knew that I'm a harsh man, taking uh, his words, a hard man, taking out what I didn't put in and reaping what I didn't sow. Well, the logical con conclusion from that is you should have done something with the money because you know it would have been fruitful. In fact, you know it wasn't even down to you. You know that I'm the one who's actually orchestrated the fruitfulness of this investment. And what you're saying is, rather than, wow, I've been entrusted with someone's wealth that's, that I know will multiply because that's the kind of person they are, you say that person is going to use their power and authority against me. That person is not seeking to work through me for a greater good, but actually just wants to work against me. It's offensive. The king has entrusted them with something significant. And their thought about the king is negative rather than enthusiastic, excited for what the king can do. The logic is also faulted as well, isn't it? Uh, at the very least, why didn't you at least, verse 23, put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? The very least, just stick it in a low interest savings account and just get something for it. But the fact that the servant didn't do this tells you what? The servant has no interest in the king's enterprise, no interest in the king's asset, no interest in seeing the king's capital grow. He's not just scared of the king. The fact is, he doesn't care about the king's kingdom, doesn't care whether or not 
it multiplies and builds. See, the king ultimately blesses those who serve him well, who put their trust in him, who know that he can do great things from nothing. The ultimate return to that is a great blessing, a great reward. To reject the whole process, to reject the nature of the king, is to not only deny his power, but to impute a whole different set of motives to him. To not even put his money on loan, on hold rather, not even collect the interest, is to say you just don't care about what he's doing. Verse 26, the king closes off. I tell you to everyone who has more will be given, but even for the one who has nothing, but for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. You kind of think this is not really a Christian verse, right? Surely the Christian verse or the Christian way of saying this is to everyone who has, some will be taken and given to those who have nothing so that everyone will have something and will all be roughly the same. That's not what's said here. And it only makes sense, of course, when you realise this is not about money. This is not about the distribution of material assets. It's a parable, it's a story and it's transparently thin. The, the king is Jesus. The assets are assets that go toward building his kingdom. They're acts of faith. And to those who have faith, those who have an, an active faith and commitment to this king, more will be given. And to those who lack any faith, well, even what you might have had will count for nothing and will be taken away. Not about how much money you've got in the bank. It's how much your heart is with the king. And the more it's with the king, the more he'll bless it and grow it as one of his followers. So the main point, I think, of the parable is Jesus does not just want subjects. Jesus wants servants who are active in his gospel enterprise. And he expects his servants to faithfully labor with his assets to build his kingdom. That's what he expects. Uh, tell you another story about um, someone I knew who's a university student and who was about to have their 21st birthday. And uh, what they asked for for their 21st birthday was uh, a whole lot of money so they could go on a holiday. They basically wanted to you know, do a backpacking trip of Europe or somewhere like that. So I asked all their friends to pitch in and their friends pitched in and they got several thousand dollars. And uh, very excited, I think, wow, I can go and have this trip, it'll be great. And realised... Who is this serving? What kingdom is this building? What actually is the return on this investment? And took all of that money and instead donated it to a mission organisation. Because they were a Christian believer, a follower of the king, and actually realised at the end of the day, my goal here is not just to, well certainly not to use this for myself or to sort of stick it in an account, but to use it to extend the king's kingdom. And that's what they did. So as we've looked through this part of the scriptures, we've had three important lessons. From the blind man, we learn shamelessly call on Jesus. That's an act of faith that Jesus rewards. From Zacchaeus, we've learned that Jesus' call on us should be radically transformative. Not just tell us things in our head, but change who we are. And from the parable, we learnt that Jesus wants servants who are active 
laboring faithfully with the assets they have to build his kingdom. And again, each of those three is worthy of reflection and worthy of our humble prayer and consideration. But again, I think they're given to us together as the final teaching before Jesus enters Jerusalem, as the pre-game briefing. There's not actually a lot that's new here if you've been reading the Gospels. These are the things that have rattling around in our heads as we think about how do we play this game of following the Lord Jesus. You understand how I use that language. It's, it's not a game at all. Uh, but that's what's going on. How will I take these things I know? These are the three things to have kicking around. You see, here's the thing. The Lord Jesus Christ does not want followers who love to declare his name and talk about him out loud all the time but whose lives are otherwise indistinguishable from those who live around them who don't follow Jesus as Lord. And he doesn't want followers either whose lives are full of godliness and justice and yet who invest nothing towards seeing the kingdom grow. And he doesn't want people following him who put their assets and their energy into seeing the kingdom grow but are too embarrassed to say his name out loud in a mixed crowd. You see, all three go together. All three go together. People who unashamedly mark themselves out as people who call on Jesus as the son of David, the true king. People whose lives are transformed, marked by justice that seeks to serve others. And people whose labours are labours towards kingdom ends. Those three things have to go together. Truth is, they can't really be separated. That's, you can't be a person who's one of those things without the other if you're a follower of Jesus. Although the truth also is, like my book on maturity, we might tend to mature in different areas at different speeds. It might be that uh, part of us has gotten really good at speaking about Jesus unashamedly, but another part of us is still yet working out how it is we invest in kingdom enterprises. Or it might be that part of us is really good at, say, giving our money to gospel projects or our time to kingdom work uh, and yet we still have issues of reconciliation and justice in our own personal lives and relationships we haven't worked out. We mature at different rates. Well, that's okay. I think what we need to do is just hear that that's the case and know that we need to keep working on all of these areas of our lives and not just let one substitute for the others. See, that would be the great problem. Just like you don't want someone to have a great intellectual maturity but then be emotionally immature or someone to have a great emotional maturity but to be socially immature, so too we don't want to allow one area of our maturity justify immaturity in other areas. We want to be holistically formed, fully mature disciples of the Lord Jesus. And a big encouragement for this as I finish is just to say to you, it all ends in joy. It all ends in joy. Look at the end of the story of the blind man. Uh, verse 46 of chapter 8. Uh, beg your pardon, I've got that wrong, haven't I? Um, verse 43 of chapter 18. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When the people saw it, they also praised God. The end of the Zacchaeus story. People are blessed all around. The poor receive a benefactor. 
those who have been cheated get four times back. It's great joy. And those who have invested in the kingdom, well done. Come and take charge of cities. Be part of the great thing that God is doing in having, uh, bringing his people to the fullness of all it will mean to reign with him for eternally. The call of the Lord Jesus is not a call to labour and misery and hardship. It's a call to joy. There's many facets of it. But as all those facets come together, we mature as his followers for his glory and for our good. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you so much that it's good news that uh, doesn't just hit one part of our lives, but shapes us at every front. And today, particularly, Lord, we pray that for those of us who are Christian believers, you'd help us to be unashamed at calling on Jesus, being unashamed about being identified as people who recognize him as king. We pray that you would help us also to be people who are transformed radically and whose lives reflect the truth of the gospel of healing and restoration. And we pray that we'd be people who are on board with your mission enterprises for your glory and not passive in that. And we trust all these things to the working of your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.